You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Amongst the pantheon of odd discoveries, there are many items that have stumped humanity. Their purpose and design are entirely unknown, leaving us to speculate on the dark and light aspects of intention. A mask created to frighten or to honor, a marker left to curse or to protect. Objects left behind with a shadowed past, riddles in physical form. In the summer of 1836, a most bizarre discovery was made in Scotland. Items that have confused and mystified researchers for nearly 200 years. Amongst the rocky crags of Arthur's Seat, a hill endowed with mystical power looking over the city of Edinburgh, several young boys stumbled upon oddly placed upright slabs of stone on the hillside. Curious, The boys climbed the rocks and moved the stones, revealing a small cave. Inside, laid neatly in rows, were 17 miniature coffins. The contents have led to wild speculations and musings of such ideas as witchcraft, otherworldly entities, or sacred objects. But their true purpose and creator remain unknown to this day. Join us on Into the Portal as we attempt to unravel the mystery of the fairy coffins. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And you're listening to Into the Portal, your gateway to the bizarre. <laughs> How are we doing today, Andrew? Yeah, doing great. Welcome back, everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about this one. I mean, I say that every episode because they're all amazing, but this is uh, this is a little bit different. And not just because of that, but we are actually on our last episode of oh my God. the year. That's right. So we wanted to bring that up with you guys because we're taking a quick break. Uh, we're going to be... <laughs> yeah. We're going to be hopping off the mics for about, what, like a month and a half, I guess? Is and it? Is that? I, I actually don't even know. I mean, this has crept up on us. And like, just so everyone knows, this is, uh, this was meant, this was meant to happen like two years ago, <laughs> basically. Yeah. We, uh, we ended up on a three year season one of Into the Portal. So yeah, not bad. Not bad. But time to take a break. <laughs> time I think. to take a break. So we're gracefully giving ourselves that as our Christmas gift this year. Sure. And we'll be back uh, mid-February. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we kind of wanted to do something a little bit fun for for the end of I don't know, end of the year wrap up, I guess. Yeah, we can call and it that. And this was a listener suggested topic. 
and I feel really bad because I can't remember the name of the person, but it was on Facebook. So <laughs> right. thank you so much to whoever you are. Yes. We had a bunch of people reach out with a lot of great suggestions. So we've kind of just banked all them and we're going to roll them out in season two. Yeah. We really appreciate the suggestions. It's been, it's been great. There's, a, there's been a, there's been a lot of good ones over the years. This one really stood out, uh, which is why we thought it would kind of end 2020 with a bang. What are we talking about today, Amber? Yeah, we're going to the Edinburgh Coffins, and I already mispronounced that. We're going to go with Edinburgh because we are doing our research. There we go. That's right. <laughs> we we listened to several pronunciation videos before this, but in classic ITP fashion, this is, what we, this is what we do best. <laughs> but yeah, talking about none other than the fairy coffins, as they're actually uh, most most commonly referred to online. Mm-hmm. So these are none other than 17 miniature coffins that are under, well, how big are they? They're 95 millimeters. So that is, Nine, you know, metric. So yeah. if we're talking inches here, it's about three to four inches yeah, max. something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they're, they're, that's roughly speaking, but they're just these very bizarre little objects and so much speculation. Speculation abounds uh, ever since the day they were... Uh, they were discovered all the way up until now people still have no idea what these were for that is definitely the fascination for this so in classic itp fashion again there's going to be some pretty wild speculation in this episode and we encourage you guys to speculate along with us mm-hmm. so let's let's jump into this story let's do it so in the summer of 1836 late june to be specific a group of schoolboys headed out into the lush green escape that was just outside the city of Edinburgh, Scotland. So they were headed towards a park with a really special history. In particular, it was they were said to be heading up the northeast slopes of this really famous place called Arthur's Seat. That's the, the peak of this hill, which is actually the top of an extinct volcano, which is pretty fascinating as well. This extinct volcano is inside Holyrood Park. <laughs> this is a, it's a royal park, pretty famous, located really close to Edinburgh's Royal Mile, right in the heart of the city. So the site where this episode is focused is this 640-acre expanse of parkland that was definitely associated with the royals throughout the history of this area. So it is a indeed a royal park that at its peak, this reference I've already made to Arthur's Seat, does have associations with uh, uh, the very famous Arthur that uh, might be popping into some of your minds. So this tale does have a weird turn that's going to come in a little bit later, but we're not going to dive into that right away. Definitely. I think what's interesting to note here is that it's in the heart of the city, right? It's yeah, not yeah. it's not in like the the backlands of wherever. It's like this It's right is, there. Yeah. So you would imagine like anyways, that this that, that adds an element to me. Yeah, because it's not like this uh yeah, like a provincial park like way off out in the boonies or anything. You can see the city from Arthur's seat. It's this beautiful lookout from the from the peak of the hill. But the boys hadn't quite reached the peak yet. They hadn't made it all the way up to Arthur's seat. The story goes that essentially this group of young boys had set out to hunt for rabbits. And it is a really great place to do this, even though it is right basically in the heart of the city because it is this rich, lush green area that has a lot of different flora and fauna. So it's kind of this classic example of the the Scottish countryside, so to speak. So these boys had gone about their afternoon. They were exploring the hillside, doing what boys do, searching for rabbits. Not really sure how successful they were with catching rabbits per se. But what ended up happening was they stumbled upon this really strange spot in the rocks. It looked distinctly different than every, everything else they had been passing by that afternoon. They noticed that there seemed to be this oddly placed 
series of slabs that were sort of, how would you call it? I mean, placed together, I guess would be the most basic way to describe it, placed or wedged together in this sort of upright position on the hillside there, sort of blocking this crag or small cave or cavern, you might call it, in the rocks. So they decided to investigate. This was supposed to be this sort of secluded section of the northeast side of the hill. I mean, we haven't actually been there. If people are listening and visited Arthur's seat, please hit us up. But this wasn't exactly right on the typical path for rabbit hunting. So being adventurous young boys, they veered off and discovered this strange series of pointed rocks. And behind them was this small cave. So these three pointed slabs, the boys removed them and behind opened up into this space that concealed this very strange discovery that we referenced off the top, 17 miniature boxes. Now, each box was nailed shut. The 17th of these series of boxes, they were laid out in rows um, of eight with one resting on the top, appearing as if it was going to start a th- another row, a third row that was either, that was just never finished, which will lead into some speculation later, like what was that third row supposed to be for? Who knows, right? The boxes themselves were, you might say, I mean, typically shaped for a little storage box for maybe a toy or perhaps a miniature coffin cut from a single piece of wood with the uh, lids of them uh, being separate and that were nailed down with these little brass pins. So it was done with a lot of care. The boxes were decorated in a pretty ornate way. They were formed with these details using small pieces of tin that were inserted into the wood. And all of this would have taken a pretty considerable considerable amount of time to do, uh, which is which is strange. We don't know exactly the circumstances for this find, but we do have some later accounts that kind of come in later on, and so they, they add some details to the exact location that might lead us down a rabbit hole one way or the other, and that is not a pun for these boys hunting rabbits, just so everybody knows off the top of the show, but that some details that were added later on, for example, like the space they found these boxes in was exactly a foot in height and 18 inches wide, were details added later uh, all the way up into the 1950s as people were trying to figure out what the hell was going on here. And of course, the question is, who put them there? Why? Was it done for something good as a representation or perhaps for something evil or perhaps something else altogether? So coming back to the boys, they had discovered this bizarre find, but clearly were not very put off by it. They didn't, they weren't afraid that they had stumbled on a grave or something, or they didn't think that this was something that they had to respect. So this was a quote from one of the earliest articles uh, published about the find from the Scotsman on July 16th of 1836. Fewer than half of them survived. The Scotsman stated, in the first known published article, this is what they said, they exclaimed, a number were destroyed by the boys pelting them at each other as unmeaning and contemptible trifles, which is just so unfortunate, but kind of to be expected, you you might say. So mm. anyway, that's that's the little brief story of the discovery of boys these boxes. Boys will be boys, I guess, hey? Mm. That's interesting. And, and of course, they didn't see any significance in these boxes. And once they'd had their fun, they actually left them there. Yeah. According to all accounts, they probably left them in haste, probably scattered amongst the hillside. Who knows? But the surviving objects were actually retrieved the very next day by the boys' schoolmaster, a man named Mr. Ferguson. And Mr. Ferguson was supposedly a member of the local archaeological society. So he had a vested interest in the find. Now, the little boxes 
remained unopened at this point. Right. It's an important point. And Mr. Ferguson, it was reported that he took them home in a bag, and that evening he settled down in his kitchen to pry the lids open himself with a knife. Mm -hmm. Inside, he found a number of unique and strange little figures. So what he found was a figure contained within each box. Yes. So, I mean, that would be... I wonder what his initial reaction was. If it was, this is weird or this is exciting. I mean, was he off-put by it, I wonder? I don't know. The story goes on. He was probably quite confused, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. And he did end up taking them to his next society meeting, where he and his colleagues were all equally amazed. After the initial meeting, the society made a statement about the location. And they stated that at least one of the original rock slats that had secured and concealed the coffins had actually crudely resembled the headstone of a grave. Interesting. Which, if true, perhaps this means that this was some sort of marker of a mass grave, or perhaps the stones were taken from graves themselves. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that I actually hadn't read. That adds an extra dark layer, layer to that, if that's what people... Okay, so that's okay. So this is what the initial society was was speculating upon. So those that were brought safely down from the cave eventually made their way into the collection of one Robert Frazier. Fraser? Frazier? Frazier. Let's go with the fancier version. I like the fancier version. He was a jeweler, so we can go with that. Okay. Um, So he actually put them on display in his private museum. And this was according to the Edinburgh Evening Post um, in the original... A report of the 1836 edition there. So this guy, I guess, was a... He was a member of the society as well, presumably. Robert Frazier or Frazier. Yeah, he must have been. He kept them in his collection for a number of years before they were put in auction after he retired. Right. And we do have Mm -hmm. that that detail as well, which, like, I mean, the the price they ended up selling for wasn't exactly uh, anything anything shocking. But obviously people were interested in them and and robert fraser was and obviously he wanted to put them on i mean what does a private museum mean how many people got to see these i guess but it's he, a collection probably where you have to pay i would imagine right, right? so yeah. yeah it's it's probably pretty uh not for everybody not for everybody. everybody but he was enamored with these little figures uh, as were members of the society that first saw them and inside each box contained this little wooden humanoid i'm going to say figure a human figure expertly carved as is stated in many many different articles and dressed in custom-made clothes these were all different each each uh, figure had different clothing on them and they had all been stitched and glued around around them with great care so very fitted to them and head to toe in, in in cotton clothing so at first glance they sort of appear to have the resemblance of a funeral a burial like as if they're 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 given their final garb for their for their last you know to be sent off into into the next life but that doesn't really hold a lot of water and we'll come come back to that too because we stated the length and size of the coffins there before but with a lot of these little wooden figures they didn't necessarily fit right into the 3 or 4 inch size size boxes that they were found in they were made to fit in some cases, and so it's just sort of strange. It's all done with a lot of care, but then there's aspects of it that didn't necessarily fit perfectly, as if it was forced or done in haste. Hmm. Or and you're referencing the figurines with the arms missing. Okay, so like, so I guess I should say that. So figures with 
with custom clothing made out of cotton that we don't actually know the dates of yet, but we'll get to that. Some of the figures were missing their arms as if they were uh, removed so they could actually fit into the boxes, as if the boxes weren't made specifically for that that specific figure or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Retrofitted. Retrofitted. <laughs> Later on, like the, later on, there's even more discoveries found. So we don't know this yet, but we'll get to it. Ideas of different paints being used, perspectives of the, the facial expressions on the figurines, and all of these things will lead us down a different mm-hmm. a different path. And the things that were once there but aren't anymore. Exactly. <laughs> but before we're, we're getting cryptic <laughs> on you guys. <laughs> yeah. So I love it. I love it. But yeah. before we we jump right into those things, there that analysis hadn't been done yet. So basically all. People in the 1930s, the 1830s had to work with was just at first first glance what this looked like. Mm -hmm. And there was a very specific public reaction when this first came to light. Let's get into that because 1830s public reacts, how do you think? Uh, Obviously, the press had a field day with this find. There were a lot of people of medical and scientific minds and also people with... uh, (laughs) not so scientific minds let's just area. say this like let's say let's say <laughs> they, there, i just want to say this just so everyone knows like the general context of the time period it was a very stark contrast between like advancing medical practices and then severe socioeconomic discrepancies in society so it was like a lot of education happening and then none at all mm-hmm. and very a lot of darkness in the city for sure yeah, economically and socially, hey. And even I was just trying to maybe speak to the idea that there were a lot of progressive minds existing and then there were a lot of more traditionalists yes. harkening back to the days of magic and witchcraft. So yeah, there was a lot of ideas and speculation. And the following month of July, there was this, uh, I love this headline here. It says, Satanic Spell Manufactory. <laughs> Uh, This was from the Scotsman, and they were obviously the first paper to report on this initial story back in 1836. And this was a quote from them. They said, Our own opinion would be, if we had not some years ago abjured witchcraft and demonology, that there are still some of the weird sisters hovering about Mushaf's Karn, (laughs) or the Windy (laughs) Gowl, who retain their ancient power to work the spells of death by entombing the likenesses of those they wish to destroy. Ooh. Very sensationalist, to yes. say the least. Yeah. And it's kind of funny, though, how they they start that statement by saying, had we not some years ago abjured, which obviously means, like, renounced and that type of thing. So, <laughs> which is such a backwards thing to say, though. It's like, had we not, we totally would be supporting this, which we sort of are by stating it in the which first place. you <laughs> totally are by yeah. stating it. Anyways, so of course, of course, there's other newspapers that followed with similar statements. There was lots of talk in the town about this. There was similar ideas. There was also alternative ideas like the idea there could have been they could have been symbolic burial effigies of the saxons sure and uh it it was it was yeah speculation abound typical right right and if you were one of these people like i in my head i'm just you know that would just be so incredible even today right imagine if something that was found in your town oh man yeah i know it It harkens back to so many i'm even thinking like hexam heads that's another great example of weird objects being found in england (laughs) again humanoid too Anyways, we're, I yeah, digress. Yeah, the UK, they've got lots of strange little objects, don't they? Yeah. It's weird, man. But what would become of the coffins and their contents? This becomes a little bit of a mystery. Like we said, there originally was 17 
Half of them were destroyed by the boys, so unfortunately about eight remained. Those were sold off to Mr. Fraser, but in 1845, he retired and the collection was auctioned off. And it was actually described in the sale catalog as, quote, the celebrated Lilliputian coffins found on Arthur's seat, 1836, and sold for 4.8 pounds, which would be the equivalent of 587 pounds today. Which isn't like a ridiculous amount of money. No. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like these were some sort of, um, yeah, like it did, it, yeah. I, I kind of expected that number to be a little higher when I got to that uh, section of, I think this was from the Museum of Scotland article from from our notes, but mm-hmm. doesn't that just seem like a low price for some, for something that could, could be so mysterious? It's like, no one knows what well, these were from. I, to be honest though, no, I would counter that point by saying that a lot of stuff of similar kinds of things are sold at auctions all the time true, for private collections true. when it's literally nothing more than a decoration right like it's and that's what these were they were sold as an interest piece so whether you're going to put them on display or not like there's really not much you can do with them per se and they don't have any verified association with anything of historical note so that was kind of my reasoning with that you would have to be on the inside and like know what they were associated with to like have that Mm -hmm. intrinsic value in them i guess okay i kind of had a question though and this was my question here did the person who acquired them have any knowledge of what they were? You know what I mean? Like, all there is is a description here found on Arthur's seat. So they might have been, like, Arthur folklorists. I don't know. Hmm. But we don't have any information. The story goes that the remaining coffins passed onto unknown private hands. Yeah. And they remained out of the public eye until 1901, when the set of eight that we know today, together with their contents and clothes and everything, were donated to the National Museum of Scotland by their then owner at the time, who was a woman named Mrs. Christina Cooper of Dumfrieshire. Dumfrieshire. I hope I'm saying that right, or even remotely right. Dumfrieshire. Dumfrieshire. Close enough. Mm -hmm. So now (laughs) we're kind of moving into modern times. We have eight of these little coffins that have survived to present day and they do remain on display at the museum of scotland the national museum of scotland i should say and i do i just want to say too like the idea that we've of calling them coffins because when they were first found that we didn't i mean no one knew what was in them mm-hmm. the, the uh, mr ferguson who first allegedly if mr ferguson is indeed this person we have a, a reference later on uh, a real person uh he prized them open and then they realized that it's a coffin but no one's really put off by that. It's not, I, I mean, that adds a layer to the strangeness, but no one seems to be like, whoa, like that's, that's off-putting. Yeah, Everyone, they were. They were saying it was witchcraft Okay, the very So and... the very first article that came out was very sensationalist, but the society that was looking at them was definitely not Oh, I see what you're that. saying. Okay, from, from, yeah, that's Yeah, like from the more academic perspective. I guess, yeah, that, 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 that's a good example of what you... The demarcation of like science and old world thinking like mm-hmm. they could because the witch trials was hundreds of years before this like witch witchcraft and practicing of that had, had kind of died off and i've got 16, some notes on that but yeah. mm-hmm. anyway i i do find it interesting that they're called coffins but they're coffins because they contain a human right. and i actually think of them more so as vessels than coffins sure. because yeah. in my mind i kind of 
make vague associations to like alchemy and when we covered the homunculus as an example and then even when you go to bride of frankenstein and his version of the homunculi and and, you know like just the idea of like containing human representation within a vessel like almost as if i'm thinking of like the indian in the cupboard kind of thing where it's like what if these things came to life like pinocchio and there was like (laughs) some sort of connection between their maker and them and that has since past obviously so anyways i'm getting down a rabbit hole already we've got coffins or vessels if you want to call that we've got these different clothes different shaped heads some missing arms eyes open which again is weird if you're thinking these are supposed to be burial effigies were they made to represent specific people were they fashioned for a specific purpose we have so many questions we're gonna get into all of that but first a quick promo break Hey everyone. You know, one of the biggest things in the past that held me back from reaching out to find a counselor or finding someone professional to talk to was really one thing. Time. People always justify putting their mental health on the back burner. I'm too busy. I'll make an appointment next week. Or it's not too bad. I don't need to talk to someone about it. It's fine. But you know what? It's not always fine. And that's why BetterHelp.com is so awesome. First off, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and you can connect with a licensed professional in under 24 hours for professional help, not self-help. You can benefit from the huge advantage of BetterHelp being available on multiple platforms across the globe. So you have the help you need wherever you are, without ever sitting in an uncomfortable waiting room. Time problem solved. This is all on your time. They are 100% committed to you from the get-go, and you'll get matched with the best person for what you need. And it's easy and free to change counselors if the need arises. Amber and I want you, our listeners, to start living a happier, healthier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot portal. And we're back. Okay, so before we get right into the coffin's possible original purpose and some theories and speculation that get into some pretty crazy stuff we wanted to just do a tiny bit of housekeeping and the first and most important thing to mention (laughs) is that we are really excited to welcome a brand new producer adam to the show so adam has joined stanley over there as our two producers it's amazing so Mm -hmm. so stoked thank you so much for joining us as a producer such a massive help uh like i i'm at a loss for words honestly it's really really awesome we were, yeah we were kind of speechless <laughs> that's never happened we never no, had two producers no and the so ideas cool. are already flowing which is great yeah uh so already been a, a massive help in so so many ways and we also had another patron join us as well at the cryptid seeker tier yeah uh, so simone has joined us so thank you so much simone welcome uh to uh to to our patreon really really excited to have you and mm-hmm. excited for you to uh to check out all the episodes that are on there for you so yeah that was the, that was the first thing the other thing was we already set it off the top last show of the year just wanted to remind everyone of that this is uh, we're finally taking a little bit of a break in the new year mm-hmm. with plans to return in february with brand new a brand new season season two after three years <laughs> <laughs> with brand new episodes for you guys and it's going to be really exciting we are revamping some stuff we mm-hmm. feel like we've really improved on our practice over the last few years and it's only going to get better so yeah. thank you all for listening and for keeping us motivated 
and all of that because it's we do it for you we do it for all the listeners and for our patrons so thank you guys exactly and we're not even really taking a break because in the meantime we've got a couple of projects we're going to be working on and applying some of the new stuff i've been learning in school and with andrew all the stuff you've been putting together as our project manager and <laughs> yeah so look out for yeah like dark artifacts i think we've mentioned it a couple of times but we've yes. finally got our first prototype done unbelievably excited you guys mm-hmm. so go follow at dark artifacts on instagram we don't have any other pages or anything up yet but we have our instagram it is going to be so freaking cool i don't even want to give too much details just stay tuned it's going to be custom mm. forged artifacts of high strangeness that yeah. are unlike anything else you'll find online mm-hmm. uh it's going to be really really cool also, we have another project that we've uh, we've started dabbling in that Amber is leading. Pink Yeti. Pink Yeti. Yeah, that's going to be a really fun project. And it's already hit the ground running, I'd yeah. say. Hey, we've got Teddy the Yeti, our ambassador, <laughs> our brand ambassador. Loungewear. Children's some... loungewear and... And adult loungewear. I mean, I want some, I want some sweats. <laughs> I want some Pink Yeti sweats, man. Come on now. Yeah. Uh, it's just going to be some really cool stuff with some, some funky original designs. So, yeah. And maybe some uh, children's books down the line. Too. Ooh, yes yeah. indeed. <laughs> lots okay. of fun stuff <laughs> all right let's get let's get back into this let's do it so we wanted to uh, well kick off the second part of the show here the episode here with um just listing some of the coffins potential original uses or like the purpose the original purpose of these things because like we said speculation abounds and these little entry points i guess are are good to list because this will kind of like lead us off for the rest of it so mm-hmm. there's an idea that they possibly were repurposed children's toys that they the coffins could have been made much much later in order to accommodate these things and maybe it was the owner of the toys that was doing something with them later in life or or maybe not because if they were children's toys the reason they're being used in such a way you that that's an episode in and of itself right uh symbolic representations possibly mm-hmm. linked to witchcraft possibly linked to some other type of burial effigy maybe related to uh, maritime activities maybe related to war time activities mm-hmm. so oh and also the idea that they could have been lucky charms or that mm-hmm. yeah talismans of sorts yeah. uh, in order to protect protect whoever carries them on their journeys and things like that regardless of what you, anyone out there like we're tossing the, these ideas at you guys you <laughs> just might a couple. just a couple you <laughs> might be kind of leaning one way or the other but obviously what this really brings the question down to is who made these because that will help us understand why they were made and who they represent. There's no answer that can be definitive with this, right? People have proposed that the coffins could have been made by a shoemaker if we wanted to try to nail down, <laughs> pun intended, if we wanted to try to dial in the person in the area that would have been capable to do this. Do this. A cobbler would have had the tools, the small little nails. He, the, a shoemaker had all of the materials that mm-hmm. you would have needed to to create these little things. The hook knife was a big one because all of the coffins were carved out of the one single piece of wood. Yes. So if they had a hook knife, that would be huge. And, and there was uh, notes too about that where the markings from the hook knife were, it was obviously done by someone who had the tools, was a professional, but it wasn't necessarily like there was, there was spots where maybe another tool would have worked better, but they were using what they had. So that was kind of the indication that it was maybe a shoemaker because hmm. there was deeper cuts than maybe there would have normally been. Also, it's interesting to note too, the little figures were made out of white pine. That was a note I found later in one one article. But uh, anyway, that, that, that can kind of lead us as to where they came from and all those types of things. But whether it was a shoemaker or not, to me, the main question is why? 
who they represent, the spookiest of those being <laughs> that they were to represent some sort of witchcraft or some sort of like ancient pagan type thing. Mm-hmm. But before we get into any of that, there is this sort of royal connection. Oh, yeah, this is this is a fun one. And like Andrew has been <laughs> tiptoeing around, I guess. <laughs> there is a connection to the one and only King Arthur, because in this particular location, there is a site known as Arthur's Seat. It is the highest point in the entire park. And it is actually at the very peak of this ancient volcano, like Andrew also mm-hmm. mentioned off mm-hmm. the top of the episode. It's a very well-preserved fort, and it's one of the largest in the areas. And this site, obviously, as soon as you mention Arthur, it's like, oh, yeah, Knights of the Round Table, give me more kind of thing. Are these all of his men? Like, you know, because you look at it, and to me, when I look at the physical coffins themselves and the figurines, I, I really see what my imagination thinks would be similar things oh, yeah, <laughs> to that era. But we'll get into that one in a second here. But, yeah, there's, there's actually this fort that dates from around 2,000 years ago. So hmm. there's rich history here. And alongside that, there's a diverse range of flora and uh, geology, too. Yeah. So it's it's noted for uh, a site of special scientific interest. Um, but also, of course, <laughs> speculated as one of the possible sites for Arthur's fabled Camelot. So this is the site known for the Round Table, Merlin's Quarters, all of that really fun mythology. Classic stuff, man. So, of course, just due to the vicinity of the location, there is speculation that some of these miniature figures were perhaps representing some of Arthur's knights and members of his royal court, perhaps, or even like, you know, remnants of the ancient site itself. But there are massive problems with this theory. And as fun as it may be, there's a lot of problems, including the style of dress, the tools that were used, and the fabric dating, which we'll get into in a sec here, but... It definitely doesn't date back to the legendary times of King Arthur, unfortunately. unfortunately. Yeah. Or at least I will say this. it, The ones that survive to this day can't be dated to that time period. That's a really so good point. So that's important to say because, like we said off the top, 17 coffins originally, two rows plus one as if a third row was being started. Yeah. So in my mind... We'll get into a quote from Charles Fort later down here where he alludes to that, how the most of the ones on the bottom were very, very... Like they're old. falling apart. Yeah, they were yeah. old. Like they had uh, mm-hmm. clearly been placed there before. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so despite all these issues and everything, uh, people still like to go down that particular rabbit hole with, uh, with these little coffins. But for the scope of this episode, we're really not going to get into much of King Arthur Day, unfortunately. We'll save that for another special Patreon episode, so stay tuned. But again, so we're talking location here. This is an area that is known for a lot of, you know, ancient pagan rituals, dark magic. There was a specific tribe back in uh, 400 AD called the Celtic Votarini, and they performed all manner of rituals on these grounds. So it's over centuries. And again, right, you get all sorts of bloodshed, battles, sites of sorcery, witchcraft, tales, things like that. Alleged so, uh, uh, medieval miracles. Oh, that's Which that is too, pretty crazy. Of the spring, which yeah. Andrew will touch on too. But I think witchcraft is a fun one to start off with. Eh? Like, I think we have to. I mean, that was the, the first sensationalized article that came from the Scotsman. And they weren't... I don't think it was... Despite being 1836 and hundreds of years after the, the witch trial crazes and things like that, 
there was some credence to it. I am going to be the devil's advocate for those saying, there's no way that this is witchcraft. <laughs> I'll get you my pretty. Okay. Because that was that's what they pointed to right away. Witchcraft, demonology as the, the purpose. And the fact that Arthur's seat is rife with these legends and this rich history that Amber just mentioned kind of makes sense that maybe this would be some sort of maybe not typical uh, uh, means of going about witchcraft, but maybe someone coming up with their own coming up with their own practice i guess like mm. almost like an 1836 version of like wicca you know what i mean mm. like a, i guess there already was wicca that like the new age version right. of what had been pushed into the darkness or whatever because the late 1500s scotland this was like that was when things were terrible like if you had a ward on your nose don't go outside because <laughs> you were gonna get you were gonna get burnt at the stake as a witch right <laughs> And it was always being associated with the devil. I think it was king. Oh, I can't remember which king it was in Scotland. It doesn't really matter because basically anyone in power was dead set against this because of their association with the church. So it didn't really get a little bit more normalized until the 17th century when mm-hmm. there was a little bit more religious pluralism that scientific ideas were being more accepted and that this sort of this certainty in witchcraft was sort of out the window but it was definitely still there. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about what these things look like, like you mentioned that their eyes are open. Mm -hmm. That's been used as evidence to suggest, for example, that these aren't witchcraft figures. Because when we're talking about typical witchcraft, or if these things remind you of like voodoo, that -hmm. they're supposed to represent specific human beings that someone was trying to do something bad to, they don't really have that vibe because they're really well-dressed, they are painted with happy faces or relatively happy faces. Mm-hmm. The coffins themselves or the boxes themselves aren't damaged in any way, which, is the, which are, is the main one. Neither are the figures, right? There's no slashes, no cut marks, no burns, no nothing that would suggest that they were defaced. Yes. Or, or mutilated. Right. Yeah, the idea of their their eyes being open and having these happy expressions and all that, to me, it's like you can look at that from one perspective and say that that doesn't seem nefarious. But then on the flip side, like my dark mind went directly to this idea that that almost seems as if it's representing something being buried alive, someone being buried with their eyes open that hasn't yet passed to the great mm-hmm. beyond. Um, and when <laughs> That's we th- a creepy thought. It's a dark thought, I know. Uh, I definitely wanted to add that in as the devil's advocate because I feel like these, these coffins, these figures I'm air quoting here, they have that vibe. They have a bit of that vibe of voodoo. Hmm. Figures of humans buried in the ground, right? That's As if true. to represent those who end up in a coffin, who end up dead. The the main thing in Scotland for witchcraft that would be anything voodoo-like was usually involving like calf's hearts, like animal body parts stuck with pins and things like that. Yeah, or um, anything stuck with pins. Basically and anything stuck did, with pins, yeah. They actually did x-ray them and there was no pins found in no. any of these uh, miniature people. Right. Mm-hmm. But like we said, I did like this was a direct quote. The idea that the open eyes of the figures suggest that they were not carved to represent corpses. So this was from um, Simpson, who was a researcher at the Museum of Scotland in the early 90s, which is some of the most recent work on, on the figures. Right. So we don't see or find other things like that involved. The calf's hearts, the pins. They definitely don't. If they are involved in witchcraft, it is a new brand of witchcraft. Um, because we can't pinpoint exactly who who they were representing mm. if they were, right? There wasn't maybe like stories of missing people in the area right. f- related to witchcraft or kidnapped 
for witchcraft. Or, or even just go more broadly, go to like cult behavior, like, you know, like a right. secret underground society. Ooh. Like maybe they buried effigies of their members in remembrance of their position or something. <laughs> We're going down rebels. <laughs> already, already. But for the Scotsman in their first article, this essentially the reason they went directly to witchcraft was because of the history of Arthur's seat. It wasn't just because of the history of witchcraft in Scotland or the UK from the 1500s. It's, mm-hmm. It was because of the specific location. Right. And at Arthur's seat, there's a few very, very interesting places, one of them being this medieval well called St. Margaret's Well. And this has been a, it's an interesting place. It's very significant for certain people. It's like a pilgrimage site and oh, has yeah. been for many, many years because the waters are so pure. It's like this, I just want to be pure. I said pure <laughs> exactly like Frank Reynolds did. Uh, but they're known as, it's known as being this site of like the most pure spring water. And this is why it quickly became associated with witchcraft because herbalists, uh, early people be, uh, coming up with their own medicines and things like that were automatically associated with witchcraft. And so the site did as well. So it became mm. known as this location for gatherings of, of witches and different clans, sorcery, uh, the, the springs and the water itself became evil. It was associated with evil and the devil. Interesting. Um, it actually even took on the name uh, Hags No, like <laughs> K-N-O-E. Um, Hags No. And known as a place for summoning evil. So it makes sense that people would think that these little figures were maybe related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other I mean, thing I just wanted to toss in here at the very end, which is... It's, it's super modern and it's not associated, but just to go, just to to show how much people really like doing weird stuff at Arthur's Seat, I came across this and I was like, oh my god, this is so cool. But then I realized it was like really modern. But just recently, there was this weird pagan metal plate discovered near the same site at Arthur's Seat, and it was cut into this triangular hole in the in the ground, and it had all this like pagan symbolism on it that was hmm. like had a pentagram and was very much like associated with the devil. And it was just sort of like plopped there for no reason like oh, to, be, so to be stumbled on. It wasn't old. No, it was new. This is this is modern. But it just goes to show it's like people are just walking out into Holyrood Park mm-hmm. still and doing just like weird. doing weird stuff. Yeah. Like leaving that weird. Like that's obviously not a little figure, but it's just kind of like you're doing some sort of a ritual out there and leaving it to be discovered. It's hmm. kind of like the the monoliths recently, <laughs> recently in pop culture. That's a, exactly right? what I was like, thinking of. Yeah, yeah where, where these show up in Romania and and was it the first one was in Utah, I think, right? In, uh, in the canyon there. Yeah, in Utah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a little different, but that's yeah. Actually, that is kind of a weird parallel. <laughs> so I don't know if these things are associated with anything pagan, but they are best known online as the fairy coffins. So I think that's a good segue because my fantastical mind kind of wanted these things to be representations of perhaps not humans but maybe something else because Mm. obviously the uk and scotland in this area is rife with history of pixies fairies and otherworldly realms as well i know it is strange that they are known as the fairy coffins yet there's really nothing that connects them or associates them with the fairy lore aside from their petite stature yeah so to speak but even the the way that they're carved, their adornments all suggest human as opposed to like some sort of magical folk. You know what I mean? And it doesn't really lend itself to that type of thing. Though there was something else that I wanted to like touch on too, the idea of like, again, the talisman concept. And this ties into alchemy with the mandrakes and uh, the idea that some people think this could have been made by a merchant or perhaps some sort of herbalist type figure someone who could have sold all sorts of things, like from cure-alls to lucky charms to medicines to these uh, 
these mandrake roots that were supposedly, again, like a lucky charm. So they would sell them to sailors at sea. And according to uh, the National Museum of Scotland, in, sorry, this is quite modern, 1976, a man named Walter Havlernick, who was the director of the Museum of Hamburg History, came up with his own theory. So he actually thought um, that, again, right, it was a talisman. It was, he connected to this German superstition for seafaring folk that they keep these mandrake roots or tiny dolls in coffins as these talisman. And so he thought that perhaps these were a horde of lucky charms. I love that phrasing. They're Um, after me lucky charms, a horde. Quote, a horde of lucky charms hidden in the hillside by the merchant to be sold to the sailors. So they just... just, seem... Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's just bizarre to me that someone would go to such effort to have these things in such a weird place, right? Like, why would you have slabs of stone covering it? Why would you just have it in your house? Well, that's the thing. I'm like, around a box. That seems pretty cumbersome. You got to go all the way out there to get your product, to bring it all the way back down, to sell it to some guy about to get on a boat. Mm-hmm. Unless they did legitimately have some sort of, like, endowed power. Like, yeah. unless they literally did have some sort of a spell on them, an incantation. He had to keep them out there. Well, that's the one thing I thought of, too, because I was like, again, right, we're talking Arthur's Seat. We're talking Margaret as well. Like, there's all of these places of really high significance. So perhaps the charm part, so the actual luck part, comes from the site. So if you have a storage shed on the site and you're bringing people to the site to make their purchase so they know where it's coming from, then perhaps, <laughs> like, you know, it just lends itself to, again... I think of guest experience, <laughs> but like, you know, the experience of your client and, and how you can enhance that by having such tools around like that, right? Where you... <laughs> it's all about the perspective. Exactly. It's about, it's the same thing they do with natural spring water, right? Or the air that was being sold in China from like the mountain, the Rocky Mountains. Oh, and yeah. It's like, it's all about the place. That's all right. It's all about the site. It's so, true. You know, it's true. You can get a lot of extra value to be added there. I think the one... Yeah. But there okay. is... Okay, I will just finish off this one little thing by saying there is absolutely no evidence of this particular tradition existing in Scotland. So there was nothing to back it up. And the National Museum of Scotland did touch on that exclusively. And they said there's actually nothing. It's a German thing. <laughs> Those weird Germans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was definitely talismans. Yes. But oh, not yeah. human-shaped ones in coffins. No, they were usually very crude objects. So we saw examples of seeds. We saw examples of crosses with material woven around them. There's all sorts of weird stuff out there, but nothing even remotely resembling these types of things. So another thing that if you're going along this like seafaring traditions and the connection to the sea, some people have actually speculated that it could have been a representation of those who had been lost at sea. So they had died in distant lands and their bodies had never returned to the homeland. So these were representations to sort of put them to bed, so to speak. You know what I mean? But not Um, at an actual cemetery or not in a place. Like it's, okay, okay, I I get you, I get you. And there was, there is evidence that this was an ancient custom in Saxony. So again, right? Yeah, just the burying of departed friends who died in distant places and never to return to their homeland. Again, this was addressed by the National Museum of Scotland and they said that this particular tradition, again, has little bearing in Scotland. There's basically no evidence of such tradition that can be linked to the coffin find and so it only adds to the mystery. Speculation abounds. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that people would definitely have some sort of a ceremony or something for when they have a, a loved one lost at sea. There's nothing to bury. Mm-hmm. But but if it, yeah, but the fact that it's not specifically a little miniature figure 
would be something new, would be someone either that's maybe from Germany or from somewhere else that's deciding to do this, or they're they're starting something brand new. It's a brand new tradition. But mm-hmm. that's the that's that's the crux to me that that sort of crosses over that line into not necessarily paranormal, but definitely someone dabbling in something that they didn't want anyone else to know or that mm-hmm. they weren't yeah. shouting at the hilltops despite oh, yeah. it being on a hilltop. Again, kind of like more secret society type thing. Very it's much like, so. These are people that we want to be preserved in a certain way, right? Even though it's kind of weird, if they were actually supposed to represent specific people, like I would almost look for etchings, like uh, written markings to demarcate who it is. Yeah. There's nothing like no. that. There's no writing on them whatsoever that has ever been So it's clearly So it's clearly someone who either knows from the fabric used on it, like exactly who it's representing, or mm. there is no literal representation. So that's kind of, yeah, that's one line of thought. But if they're not representing like long lost loved ones or something along those lines, then what? You know what I mean? There's the, also the idea that they could have been like toys. I, I feel like that's a kind of a crude way of phrasing it. But they were like, they had purposes that were then retrofitted and custom to this sort of where they ended up. You right. know what I mean? Okay. It's almost like when someone has a hand-me-down and they've got they've got the set from their big brother and they're like, you know what? You played cowboys. I'm playing space rangers. So I'm going to make all your cowboys into space rangers and do whatever the hell I want. (laughs) You know, that type of thing. It's got a little bit of that vibe. Yeah. So some people think that they weren't carved specifically for the purpose of burial, but they were adapted for such purposes. There is this indication that they actually originally wore hats and that their lower bodies had been carved to form these like tight, areas where there could be knee breaches, how do they call them? Knee breaches and hose. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Like hosiery, like, you know, like like tights and like that type of thing. Like Um, socks, basically. Yeah. And then there's like this idea that there's like uh, the feet have been blackened to indicate like boots. Some people think maybe this was a group of soldiers, toy soldiers, or maybe actual battle representations that were used to formulate strategy. It does. I mean, okay, if they did, if they did have if they if their feet were painted and then faded away it's like clearly they were repurposed because if they were painted from scratch unless they were really old mm-hmm. yeah. like that's that's the strange thing because we don't necessarily have dates of the wood itself there's no carbon dating of the wood no it's just the materials it's like just the, the materials used the, yeah that's important to know whatever. too yeah these things could be hundreds of years old some technically of them, some of them yeah totally yeah. and you're thinking the clothing came on much later potentially mm-hmm. that's just totally an option too like that's that's the funny part about all of these is they could have gone through many different lives just to cap off that point i was making there the idea that they had additions that have now been taken away this idea that it this one researcher noted it was uh two researchers all right simpson and menifee <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. But they said that each is made to stand upright with the addition of a slight weight on its front, which may have been supplied by the addition of a model musket. Mm. So if they had a a little bit of a weight leaning them, then they would be perfectly centered. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, so like that would, yeah, so clearly toy soldiers. Soldiers from which era? Which army? Yeah. I wonder. Exactly. Well, there's this one uh, interesting bit here from a man named Jeff Nisbet. 
and he's a, a Scottish-American writer. And he actually thinks that the dolls could be linked to the Radical War of 1820. Basically, what was going on was there was workers, so people like weavers and other craftsmen, right? So the type of people that would have been capable of making these types of things. They had actually uh, launched into a bunch of protests and strikes, and there was this whole big clash and whatever else, but actually later on they were put to work building what's known as Radical Road, and this is right by Arthur's seat there. And this researcher believes that the coffins may have been left there as like a coded memento, so to speak, by those who wanted to see that sort of workers' movement rise up again. Okay. A memento for a reignition of the movement. I know, and I was kind of like... I, I thought maybe sure, but like in my mind, I was like, well, what if they weren't even meant to incite another sort of underground movement, but they were actually just memorializing individuals who had like perhaps maybe even died in the conflict and that type of thing. And this was an act of, of remembrance, sorry, in their own private way. It wasn't meant to be public because maybe they just weren't on the right side of public opinion at that time. No doubt. And they just left... Uh, respect like you know like a, yeah. a memento of respect as opposed to a, a coded memento <laughs> suppose that's possible who's gonna uncode that yeah who's well yeah <laughs> that's kind of a reach <laughs> i mean this all brings us to this is a great segue because this brings us to our section on dating them because mm -hmm. that is really what we're trying to do here with all of this speculation on what these might be because that whether it's for this yeah this revolution or for uh, sailors at sea the clothing on them that we're going to get into dating so let's let's talk about that dating the coffins and the validity of the story so we're going to kick things off here with a quote from none other than the father of paranormal research, Charles Fort. You know, of all the, the 14, 14 <laughs> news, 14 times, Charles mm -hmm. Fort. This is what he had to say. The extraordinary datum, which has especially made mystery here, that the coffins had been deposited singly in the little cave and at intervals of many years. In the first tier, the coffins were quite decayed and the wrappings had moldered away. In the second tier, the effects of age had not advanced too far, and the top coffin was quite recent looking. So this kind of goes off with what you were saying mm -hmm. earlier in the episode. The first layer was partially decayed, which, yeah. I mean, according to this quote, which is just means that they were deposited over a period of time, which means that this was like a systematic, calculated purpose for them being placed there sort of one by one. It was like a system they had. And like, again, it almost speaks to the idea that this was a crypt or a tomb where That's what perhaps I'm members of some sort of society, in my mind, like, you know, once they pass, they're buried symbolically along with... Or the other thing that you could think of too, just playing devil's advocate here, because we are in natural, a natural formation, right? It's rock. The idea that the, t the bottom row, obviously, would be sitting on the bottom of the shelf so maybe there was moisture present Could or be. other ways of eroding the materials when you know like it's like the same thing when you go into like a really old attic where things have been stashed away or stashed away stashed away stashed away that's a mix stashed of stashed away? and stuffed i'm having some problems here <laughs> <laughs> no i totally i agree stooshed and stashed. stooshed away <laughs> Let's just go with that. Yeah. No, I, I it, yeah. And, you no, know, and then the bottom half looks like, you know, like all the American picker shows where it's like yes. the bottom layers are obviously going to be more. Yeah. But again, right, they always say the, the oldest stuff's at the bottom. So. Right. Anyways, you can, you can go a couple different ways with that. But I thought that was really interesting because, like, I feel like a lot of the people talking about this and the research is, like, trying to make them, like, one singular thing where yes. they were all... 
from the same period when right. perhaps they're not. Yeah, as if they were all even, even like for, for some people's perspective, yeah, just like plopped there at one time for like, yeah, like for one specific thing. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, like if we think of it over many, many years, that just adds so much more to it. Like mm -hmm. we could go speculation crazy with, with if we go back, say to like the 1600s, if it even dated quite that early. But all of this is added up to make it really difficult to to date them, to say whether or not they were carved by one person or whether they were placed there over a longer period of time. Oh yeah. So getting into sort of more of the details of what's in them. So like, for example, there's one particular coffin that has this very particular paper called rag fiber. Mm -hmm. That is a process dates to around 1780, to okay. the end of the 1700. But then there's also other clothing, fabric found on other little figures in these coffins that have been stitched with a type of cotton thread that did away with linen. So it's around 1812. Oh, is where so the, it's even the, the, more modern. Even more modern, the shift of that fabric. Interesting. Whereas other figures have this even thicker fabric, like a two-ply thread that sort of stitches the garments together, which again moves the, for the date forward a little bit further. Ooh. So were they manufactured at the exact same time, just using materials from different dates? Or is this multiple people over a series of time, like you said, like some sort of a secret society? Mm -hmm. People are picking up the pieces as we go here. This yeah. is information pulled from a, a Folklore Friday blog, but it's just really made it tough really yeah. made it tough well and then of course right we have to go back to the original thing where there were 17 coffins and now there's only eight yeah so there's only about half of the sample right i again like what have we lost <laughs> at the hands of boys playing i know right <laughs> it's so silly but there's another really weird twist added to this too when yeah. i was trying to dig into the actual date and who could have been the person at what time did they deposit these things mm -hmm. and it was five years after the coffins were actually added into the museum's collection in 1906 that the same newspaper the scotsman published another really bizarre story about this lady who was living in the city residing in edinburgh mm -hmm. who had who had called into the paper i guess i mean 1906 who had written into the paper contacted them and told them that her father some guy named mr b quote unquote <laughs> had been he was obviously like you know a, a businessman in the city and he had been visited on multiple occasions by this guy who was sort of like this town kook a daft oh. man as it was as it was quoted in the article okay and on one occasion this guy had apparently drawn on this piece of paper this really specific image of three small coffins with the dates 30 19 1837, <laughs> 38, and 1840 underneath the drawings. Oh. So. Three it, small. Well, wait a second. If he's drawing it on a piece of paper, like scale ability, like why are they, why are they assuming that they're small? <laughs> well, exactly. Right. It's like, it's, it's kind of like the Flintstones movie we were watching yesterday where that was like the early Zoolander joke. Like, yeah. how are they going to fit in these tiny little houses or whatever? Right. <laughs> but. It did add this extra layer because it was the, the the autumn of the following year, 1837, the Scotsman published this article about this relative of Mr. B's died mm -hmm. in the following year, a cousin had in 1840. So, and after the funeral, this man, this daft man had wandered into his shop and showed him this, these drawings of these little coffins and then vanished never to be seen again. Huh. Doesn't, Wait a second. So this guy basically like predicted the the deaths of Mr. B's cousin and brother? I mean, you can kind of take that however you want. I read that as basically this strange man was creating little effigies for something we don't know and was oh. showing them to somebody in the, sh in the town. Like, why would he be showing them 
these little sketches of coffins. Like it just added this other weird little, weird little tweak to the story. And like, you've got another really strange little thing to add at the very end. It's kind of funny though. Yeah. Before we get to any of that, that's strange that he would have three coffins and not 17. Yeah. But maybe he's like looking for the coffins. Like, did he explain what it was? Like, he'd be like, maybe these are lost and someone stole them from him or something. It screams to me that this man is trying to be secretive. That he was, well, yeah, he, like maybe looking. If he's, if he's daft, then maybe he's just not all there. Well, I mean, it, well, it's again, I'm just, I'm always hearkening We're back to recent <laughs> movies we've watched, but like <laughs> someone who seems daft might not be actually, like, you know what I mean? They're, they're there, but they're. He's in disguise. It's like we just watched the latest Indiana Jones from 2008. So there's like the Huxley guy, Oxley or whatever his na- right, name is. Yeah, and yeah. he's kind of like out of it because he's. Yeah mesmerized by the skulls oh, or I'm whatever. I'm thinking like you know Peter I mean? Sellers in Pink Panther where he's like going into disguises <laughs> of all sorts. <laughs> mm. We could go with that as well. But again, this just adds this layer to like who the hell crafted these things. Was there one? Was there two? Was there multiple people in some sort of a society these mm-hmm. things are representing? These are like losses of members of the society or something like that? <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> I want to go with that. But yeah, I know that's, that, that is very key to me. The idea that these were deposited over time or that perhaps there was more than one person making them yeah even though like yeah exactly this idea that it feels like it's multi-generational and like we said like fort noted the bottom tier was quite decayed so i'm assuming that none of what we have today survived from that tier which means like that's just so much more precious like if 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 any of that was still around, then yeah. maybe it would add more to the narrative as far as the timeline goes. And they might have been different. They like just to add that in, like different. they might not have been the, the the toy soldier appearance, or maybe the ones on the first level had all their limbs, oh, or saying. or had different clothing that would have pointed to different different dates or different right. different. People. Well, let's get back to the clothing just for a second sure. here, because all the dates that you put out basically are modern to 1780 and upwards right so going into modern times not going backwards because none of those materials were used prior to 18 or sorry 1780 yes so that to me provides at least a bit more of a timeline you know what i mean but i am so curious about these earlier ones i'm just i really want to go to this museum and talk to more of these individuals that have had we should even try and get an interview see if we can get we sh- someone we could try to do in that. these covid times i feel like people are more so uh willing to make those yeah like breaches Hop on and Zoom. stuff but yeah i just I, the idea that some people will say they hadn't been buried for more than six years like what do you think about that like i have a hard time if they weren't there for more than six years, then where the hell were they? And why didn't anyone else have anything to add as far as, yeah. oh, that was my uncle. He was a crafter and he did this in his spare time. Or, oh, this was actually part of a, a whole collection that was much bigger that was actually maybe a family heirloom or something. Something like you know, that. But yeah. none of that, none, no one came forward with that, which is just so bizarre to me. No, I agree. And it's also, yeah, like the idea of it being so recent also doesn't include the fact that the wood wasn't dated like that i never came across that we mentioned that already earlier in the episode but like to me if this is some sort of a (laughs) that's like carbonating a tree (laughs) no i know but it's like but (laughs) well but i mean when when was the wood chopped down and prepped to be used in some sort of like manufacturing right was it super recent was it I don't know. There's got to be some sort of testing that could be done there because in my mind it's like what if the figures inside have been replaced what if the what if the the concept of what's going on here is much much more ancient or much older but these are this is like keeping up with the tradition this is maybe right. a little bit of the skill set's been lost it kind of reminds me of like a lot of other stuff we see throughout history where like 
traditions are lost. So instead of carving them from scratch, they're using toys instead. They're trying to f- continue on with something. I guess, yeah, true. So like, let's just get, let's just rewind a little bit here. Just just center ourselves. So what does it mean? What is the if this was made by more than one person versus just one person, like obviously there's more implications, and the more people involved in a secret, the harder it is to keep. Which to me, again, speaks to the idea that it was probably a really small circle of people, maybe one or two in- individuals that were crafting these. Yes, there was one person, uh, uh, Simpson. We've actually quoted him b- above here, but he had this to say about the actual shapes of the coffins themselves, and I'll just direct quote him here. He said there are two types of external shape. Five of the coffins, numbers 1, 2, 4, 6, and 8, have been carved with square cut corners and edges, although most have slightly bowed sides so that the coffin has a taper at each end. However, the remaining three, number 3, 5, and 7, have a pronounced rounding of the edges and the ends of the coffin suggesting that there was a different manual approach and may indicate that the coffins were carved by two different individuals. So he speculated on that based on the way they were carved. Right. Obviously, maybe perhaps, like we've been saying, it was they were using the tools available to them, so maybe they lost that tool and they're using a different tool now. Possibly. Or maybe it was two people sitting together doing this, so they both have different tools, and you know what I mean? So there's a lot of different ways you can speculate and... And kind of go. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I, I think if there's the two person angle, then that little weird 1906 story of the daft man or the the quirky town the guy from the town sort of gets tossed out the window. You you would need two daft people working together on some weird thing that doesn't have any direct meaning or doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But it does it does make sense that there would be two people. The evidence points to that for me, which yeah. then furthers my opinion that there's some sort of yeah, a col- collective collective <laughs> intention going on here. Whether it's nefarious or just hmm. representative of something is totally up to the listeners to decide, and we'll we'll toss some more stuff at you to make that opinion. Yeah, but that's what I think. Okay, so we're going with a, maybe there was more than one person. Indeed, I like that because now <laughs> the plot thickens even more, and maybe we should get into some of the ne- not nefarious, but some of the weird sort of like morbid things that were going on at, during this time, roughly between. Um, 1820 to 1830-ish. Yeah, okay. And there was a couple of characters we stumbled across that kind of paint a picture of what was really happening. It's kind of funny because as we were trying to figure out the purpose of these these coffins, the evidence supporting all the theories behind them, we just got further away because of all the craziness. Because believe it or not, this story, these, these these little boxes, these little coffins are actually associated with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, among <laughs> other interesting figures. So, mm-hmm. yeah, believe it or not, it's pretty pretty wild. There's a p- potential connection between between these uh, these figures and this story by Robert Louis Stevens. I don't remember the actual date it was published, but oh gosh, uh, yeah, that's sorry, I don't have that. Somewhere. It was based off of this guy named Deacon Brody, this notorious figure from 1741. He died 1788, October 1st. This guy, oh boy, I had never heard of him. It was actually pretty no, wild. Either. Really respected member of the society in the city of Edinburgh. William Brody was his actual name. He was a cabinet maker, really highly skilled as well, known around the city and had a lot of high profile clients. He was also a member of the town council. And at some point he became a deacon and the head of the incorporation of rights and masons. So he was up there uh, with, with uh, you know, people who were basically controlling the town. But he had a very interesting hobby on the side. So by night, 
William Brody would creep around town and use his skills as a cabinet maker and a locksmith for some good old B&Es. He, uh, he had a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call him a klepto. This is a little bit more than that. Because all the people he was hobnobbing with during the day, he was breaking and entering uh, into these rich folks' house uh, at night. He's like a, kind of like a Robin Hood figure. I mean, I don't know if he was really given to the poor, but he was definitely like kind of halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. The Two-Face. Two-Face. Yeah. And there you go. The Dr. Jekyll yep. and Mr. Hyde, right? And so this lasted for quite a while, but he kind of got a little bit too greedy. And the story goes that he hatched this rather daring plan to uh, rob the royal excise office kind of a big deal mm. uh, which yeah. was his downfall he he they were caught this was an armed raid on the royal excise office although he had planned this all out and had it all strategized it went terribly wrong he was caught and eventually hanged at uh, the old toll booth on Edinburgh's <laughs> High Street. Hmm. Um, apparently there was 40,000 onlookers watching mm. this. I feel like that's probably exaggerated. And <laughs> I think so. That sounds kind of dramatic. Yeah. But this is where it ties into the fairy coffins. There yeah, was, I was wondering where it went. Exactly. <laughs> and this is so bizarre. There was a lantern and 25 lock picks that were used as evidence against him in the trial to show that he was using his skills to burgle the city, basically. Okay. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, some of these lockpicks were later found hidden at the Salisbury Crags right in and around Arthur's seat where the coffins were discovered. Mm-hmm. Now, his story goes on to inspire the, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he wasn't a murderer, he was a burglar. But people think he made the coffins? Here's the thing. There's no direct... There was nothing direct about this, mm-hmm. that there was like, these coffins are representative of Deacon Brody directly. Yeah. But the keys were found in a similar place. Okay. So I guess the speculation was that somehow, some way, someone associated with this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde inspiration figure was also related to the coffins, was also connected in some way, maybe even involved in Deacon Brody's little underworld of burglars. That's what I mean. Yeah. What if it was the Society of Burglars right? that was basically being entombed in these Possibly. little miniature coffins? Maybe it's like an Ocean's Eleven from yeah. 1836, and they're <laughs> yeah. and they're they're, keep, they're keeping reference to their members. I mean, maybe oh, that's, that's the only weird. thing that I could really make a connection to. But it is sort of strangely serendipitous that there's this place called Arthur's Seat. Mm-hmm. All this weird stuff happening, and then the city that's right there. And yeah. then stuff associated with these weird stories somehow ends up out on this hill. Well, not only that, but... Okay, so that could speak to two things. Obviously, this guy was a skilled cabinet maker, so yes. he would have the skills to make these coffins. He would. And he probably would have the means because he was in the upper echelons of society, right? So he wouldn't be, like, destitute by any means. And if he's stealing from people, obviously he's got a lot of stuff at his disposal. Do you think this but is him, like, feeling bad about it? There's a couple of problems with this, though. The fact that he died in 1788 mm-hmm. and the earliest of the materials dated to 187, sorry, 1780. Oh, my gosh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yes. That is a problem for me because then there was later materials used. So that, my next question is, did William Brody have any offspring right or (laughs) just taken up the torch for him and maybe was yeah like the just admirers maybe as well oceans jr (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that was a weird one but i had to include it because of the dr jekyll and mr hyde angle but but it is just kind of odd that these little items are found and again the other line of thought is like oh is this just the spot to put stuff like is this the place to stash stuff like like just how like okanagan lake is the place to stash bodies if you're in hell's angels like (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know what i mean yeah it's like the yeah the river off or it's like uh oh what's the like the hudson river (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) 
I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting. I like that. Pretty far fetched, but it adds a lot of color to the story. It does. And there's another even another connection to Robert Louis Stevenson too, actually. Yes. And this is a little more nefarious, a little darker, I would say. Oh, I would say and so. And it ties them to actual murderers. So we're not going to B and E's. We're going to actual. First body snatchers and then murderers. <laughs> the two Williams, William Burke and William Hare of the mid-1820s. And these two were actually kind of, yeah, they were a, a partner in crime duo that started off taking advantage of uh, up-and-coming industry that was pretty dark. Um, anyways, let's get into the, the backstory let's, here. Let's do it. So they're back in the good old days that we're talking here. So the 1800s and even before that, there was amazing amount of crimes for which one could be like punished by death. Literally, if you're like a pickpocket, you could be sentenced to death for that. Yes. And it was known as the era of the bloody code. And this all changed in 1823 with the Judgment of Death Act, which took away excessive punishment of death for like petty crimes, like I just described. So this actually led to a severe shortage of bodies. And these bodies were very valuable for medical work, for universities, for, you know, just science in general. Because like you said, Andrew, this was a lot of doctors, a lot of scientists, a lot of progress and things like that. Like think of like the Frankenstein era type thing. Yes, exactly. And they wanted to understand the body. So there's a lot of vivisection and dissections going on, leading to the era of body snatching. So there was a lot of grave robbers, a lot of underground peddlers of human remains, and it led to an, a rise in like grave watchers. So they had towers installed in actual like graveyards to watch over the bodies yeah. because once someone was buried, Literally, I saw images of um, basically like a safe for a body that's made out of iron. Yeah. So, when, <laughs> so when your loved one goes in the ground, they stay in the ground yeah. because these uh, resurrectionists, as they were called, would come at night, like literally right as they were laying in the ground. And the fresher the body, the more valuable it was. Of so, of course, they're trying to get them out as fast as possible. There was even examples I saw where people had iron like rings around the necks of the loved ones they were burying so they couldn't be lifted out of their casket. Yep. It's crazy, crazy, but it was real. And Burke and Hare would prove to be fine examples of body snatchers. And they took it to the extreme with their activities and they decided they weren't going to wait for people to die, no. <laughs> essentially. So the, the first sort of like foray into their world of body snatching and medical science happened in December. So it was around Christmas time when one of Hare's tenants, who was an elderly pensioner by the name of Old Donald. Old McDonald, hey? Old Donald. He actually died of natural causes. Yes. And he had a debt to Hare. So in order to cover the man's outstanding debts, the pair actually, they, they weighed his coffin down as the story goes. They took his body to the funeral house and then they basically did a transaction with one Professor Knox, who was a popular anatomy lecturer. Yes. And he paid them seven pounds and 10 shillings for the body. Not bad. I not know, a bad, right? Not a bad price. Is that like an underground thing? Or like, was there some sort of way i guess this is all underground because it's all legal i, I mean here I, can i can i tell that can i do the skipping rhyme of i think course. that's a perfect segue into that yes please so this actually became so prominent at the time that hair uh, that burke and hair ended up having this uh, this rhyme that kids would would say <laughs> up the close and down the stair but and ben we burke and hair burke's the butcher hair's the thief knocks the boy that buys the beef <laughs> 
That's great. <laughs> That's just dark. That's really dark. But what happened was they realized how lucrative this could be. And so because they were landlords, they actually went on to, quote unquote, encourage the deaths of various tenants who were vulnerable to such methods. And they had a body count of over 17 by the time they were finished. The murders occurred over the years of 1827 to 28. So they had the numbers right. The number of bodies is correct For the coffins. And they were actually only caught when they got a little bit greedy. And there was this one really weird circumstance that I won't really get into, but yeah, it all unraveled for them and they were both strung up. Yeah. Obviously. But let's let's get into some of the problems with this theory. Because Okay, although... so so wait, so you're saying before you discuss the theory, the theory is essentially that the coffins are representative of the victims of Burke and Hare. Exactly. Okay. And whether or not it was actually made by Burke and Hare, because I'm not even sure like I don't think they would have had the capabilities of doing this. Maybe it was like people have speculated that it was a memorialization of the victims right and there is issues because none of the figures in the coffins are male oh, sorry all of them are male and none of their victims or most of them were female so okay that doesn't really add up and the idea that i don't know i have problems with this because of the shortness of the timeline and the idea that there were materials used that were much earlier made perhaps if you want to go with that, I know we're kind mm. of like, this is kind of the thing where people will be like, excuse me, Amber, like you're being very uh, generalist with this because yeah, sure. The materials were dated to the earliest use of 1780, but they could have been in use and picked up and used in mm -hmm. say 1820. But then this is totally. And this is where the whole timeline and multiple people yeah. being involved comes into it. Because if this is a memorial to the victims, like say it's not Burke and Hare, because I don't think they would have done this. They did not feel bad about what they were doing. No, they, they were like the early, they were hardcore, man. They were Irish. Mm -hmm. They were like, they would have been the earliest like leaders of like the IRA, like blowing stuff up, doing like they're like, they were the yeah. hardcore members of society. Yeah. Um, they no, had no remorse, no remorse. remorse. No no remorse. But if someone in society did feel bad, they would have almost had to have been associated with them. They would have yeah. had to know. Mm -hmm. They would have had to know what's going on. Count, they were counted the number of they were married. Mm -hmm. That's true. So. Maybe it was one of their wives. And just because the figures inside didn't necessarily quote unquote, like I'm air quoting here, guys, represent women doesn't necessarily mean that that wasn't the intention like you didn't Maybe. glue hair onto it or whatever but that doesn't mean i mean they're little human bodies true that's what matters and I guess maybe if, yeah, they were using what was available to them, that would explain why there were some of the arms missing because they were just trying to give them a final resting spot and they right. didn't have but, any way to make it work. <laughs> again, though, this is me adding a dash of paranormal, if you will, because why go all the way out to Arthur's seat? Why not like what for me, like I would picture someone finding a little effigy for a victim of Burke and Hare in like hiding behind a brick in a wall in the town or underneath yeah. a building or something or in under a the cellar. Yeah, under the floorboard. Mm -hmm. What is it about going out to Arthur's seat that is this place of high strangeness and mysticism and like mm. and endowed with this kind of like ancient power? Was it someone's kind of like last ditch attempt to try to like resurrect their family members even maybe or felt that I don't even know like or, why go all the way out there if you're thinking if it was someone that was complicit with Burke and Hare like perhaps one of their wives or something like that like maybe they thought in their minds maybe they were more of a traditionalist and they actually did harken back to more of like the pagan type powers maybe. of that bee of the day and they thought maybe they could use and harness those powers maybe just like the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of different ways you can go about this. I really just enjoyed the addition of 
this story because of the another connection to Robert Louis Stevenson. And there's a final piece to the triangle of this Robert Louis Stevenson <laughs> connection here because we had, in 2014, there was another development. There was another coffin found, coffin number 18. Strange. Very strange. Uh, according to the National Museums of Scotland, this coffin was received mysteriously and anonymously by mail, and it was simply called 18. So this is weird because attached to this package was a label that quoted the climax for Stevenson's short story, The Body Snatcher, which was published in 1884, <laughs> just so we know. <laughs> but this is weird because it actually weaves in Burke and Hare, because Burke and Hare were the original inspiration for the Body Snatcher short story. So it kind of like brings it all together into this like really chilling thing because this was a reproduction and it looks beautiful. Like it's like really ornate. I, I don't actually, we didn't come across the information that was specific as far as if the materials could be from like, the same you era. know from the same yeah right. exactly like that part was missing but, yeah and again that's why we need to get them on the phone get an <laughs> interview. um but yeah i thought that was just so cool and like people think like you know it's just someone that was just inspired by the legends that did their own version and then sent it into the museum and uh i don't know what do you think of that to me it seems like such an odd time for, I mean, obviously anyone could be inspired by the story at any point in time after they were discovered, but this happened in 2014. Yeah. There wasn't anything like this that happened in the years leading leading up, you know, like mean in, in, in the 20th century, mm -hmm. which is just seems strange. It's like if there were still little coffins passing through private collectors' hands, that this might've happened sooner if it was actually associated with maybe the secrets, mm -hmm. maybe the society that had originally deposited them. Maybe this is someone who found yeah. a diary entry from somebody in the family. And an heirloom to go with it, right. perhaps. But doesn't want to give up the secret because there is a secret to give up and just yeah. sends it in. Yeah, because it, actually, sorry, there was another note with this sort of like quote from the body snatcher. And it was like basically saying like for to keep it entrusted to you guys so that you keep it safe. Right. That does kind of speak to the idea of preserving some sort of legacy of what these are. Yeah, and, and not only that, but also maybe almost that there's still an opportunity to finish whatever was being attempted to do. Like if it was oh, something yeah. more ritualistic, if these mm. were items that were involved in something, you know, deposited over time, multiple people involved because they're trying to achieve this common goal of some kind. That actually brings me back here before we get into our final thoughts and theories um, to something I forgot to mention with the, the fairies little section. We talked oh. about the sort of mysticism and, and fairies and stuff because... Mm -hmm. Obviously, the UK and Scotland, huge history with that. And we talked a little bit about it, like sprites, brownies, um, even things like hobgoblins and, and those types of creatures that are like fair folk. Mm -hmm. The one interesting thing I saw in an article about Scotland specifically was that if a fairy hears you call it a fairy, it will get very offended and you better watch out. They like to be called <laughs> the fair folk. Oh. So I thought, oh man, they would be really offended if they knew these things were called the fairy coffins and they were Ooh. actually associated with maybe, I thought, an attempt to connect with the fairy world. So I did a little bit of research into that, but none of the rituals or things that you would do to try to, if you believe this sort of thing, try to make contact with these entities in another realm, this isn't the way to do it. You wouldn't you wouldn't bury little mini things as some sort of a way to contact that world. Mm -hmm. But it, it seemed like someone maybe that was like trying to come up with like a new way to try to do that. Like yeah. maybe these were representative of a connection to 
little creatures. Yeah, okay. And that's where we're getting into, yeah. And then that's, that's just pure me it's just... It's pure fantasy, and it's my absolute favorite idea about this whole thing. Because I... Do you want to get into what our favorite thought is? Like, if you were to picture any possible function or purpose for these things like <laughs> in your head what's your favorite theory out of all I, I honestly I, I, I agree with what you just said like I think that what I just said is kind of my favorite theory because of the fact that Arthur's seat is this place of just mysticism magic and that yeah. and magic mm-hmm. and there isn't really much of a reason for the other uh theories we've gone through here yeah. the, the murders the <laughs> association with with burglary the uh, representation of 1820s revolutions why go out to Arthur's seat it's not a site of a famous battle or something for like that specific crag in the rocks Mm -hmm. it seems like someone did it to try to take advantage of the energy at the hill yeah if anyone is listening from edinburgh and they like have any sort of experiences from arthur's seat or they have local knowledge of it and like what it means to be up there and and to like you know experience is it a spiritual place for people like i, I mean yeah I, I would love to hear people's opinion they, that's, what, heard, that's what they say <laughs> i've heard similar things about the glastonbury tour where it's a yes. very like austere like you know it's a spiritual sanctuary type place where people go it's almost like a pilgrimage type thing too yeah. which i guess we did mention people do do pilgrimages there so they it do. is known as like this like site of like sac- sacred importance right. i guess to some people and the tour has mm-hmm. actually a connection to uh, King Arthur, Arthur as again, well, yeah. which we're going to end up talking about in <laughs> Thanks Patreon. to Stanley. Thanks to Stanley. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm, I'm really excited about that one. So what about you, though? What's your, your, that's I your favorite, the fairies? I really love this idea that I just picture in my head this, like, Geppetto-type character that's, like, carving and whittling his little creations, and they all come to life, and they're just, like, this one <laughs> cute little family that's just, like, basically, like, the Indian in the cover meets... One of my favorite books, which I, I'm totally forgetting the name of it, but it was, like, the family of dolls that live in this house, and they, like, they come to life during the night, and then they, anyways. Gotcha. I think so you're going a little like, bit more whimsical and, whimsical, and, uh, and magical with, with yeah. your theory on it. And then perhaps the magic died. It's almost like the spirit of Christmas, where it's, like, if the person isn't there to keep it alive, then these these tiny little people were just put away and... and and mm. the spirit left them. Mm. I don't know. That's my personal just favorite fantasy notion of all of this because it's just so weird. It is very weird. It's so cool. Yeah. I want to I wanna have one of these. I want to have I, a little display. Of little I mean, people. I do too. And I think... <laughs> and I af- want it to come to life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. If, if they did come to life after all of this we've talked about, I wouldn't be afraid. <laughs> it would, <laughs> yeah. like, I feel like at the end of all this, I definitely feel that these were... I mean, the evidence definitely points to it that this was done as a representation of, of something um, with care. And mm-hmm. that wasn't wasn't necessarily nefarious no. unless it's unless it's just done in a really weird way. Yeah. Because the only the only other thing like talking about sort of like Indian in the cupboard, like that old movie type of vibe or like uh, small soldiers, like things coming to life. You could go the reverse effect with that, and that's kind of a nefarious way to think of it. That maybe this is some sort of a, a witchcraft, and these little wooden figures were at one at one time people, and they've been yeah. shoo, now they're these little wooden figures and tough stuffed like away. It's like right, it's like reverse Pinocchio. Yeah. That's a little bit darker. <laughs> yeah, but obviously no evidence to support that. That's a little bit crazy. Woo woo. ITP paranormal. It is totally nuts. Yeah, totally I, nuts. I want it to be real. We <laughs> want to know what you guys think. Why were these? miniature coffins placed out at Arthur's seat. I am I am so looking forward to the things you guys have to say and post on Facebook and stuff like that. Like hit us up on our socials at Into the Portal Podcast, at Into the Portal Podcast on Instagram as well. Come follow mm-hmm. us on there. I mean, what else am I missing here? Well, that's <laughs> I don't about know. it. Yeah. We just want to like reaffirm like 
I guess, yeah, like happy holidays to everybody. We're not coming Definitely. back for a little bit, so it's going to be one of those, like, you know, it's just a short break. Yeah. But we've got some awesome Patreon content coming uh, in, yes. in the meantime. So we'll be busy with that. And then, like we said, our other little fun projects we got on the go. That's right. But I guess, I don't know, is there anything else you wanted to... I just, I, 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 I could talk about this all day. I want to know what these freaking things were. All right, man. Let's, but, let's, uh, let's move on to the socials platform. Say, yeah. hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Instagram, or send us an email. And, the and if you haven't box. yet, leave us a, a review if you, uh, on iTunes or wherever you or listen to the show. a five-star and, and a hit that subscribe button. Smash the subscribe button. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, check us out on Patreon because we will be still uh, doing Patreon stuff during our break here. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters and our two producers, Adam and Stanley. Mm-hmm. You guys are amazing. Mm-hmm. And to our newest Patreon uh, supporter Simone welcome uh, welcome exactly. so uh, yeah happy holidays everybody and uh, we'll be back uh, really soon on Into the Portal your gateway to the design. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.